the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for Dan tonight. And I am joined in studio now by Kyle Hooten. Kyle is a 21-year-old college student, uh, happens to be a good friend of mine. I know Kyle well. He's a good friend of my youngest youngest daughter. And uh, Kyle, as I say, is a college student, but he's working uh, currently part-time for a kind of a renegade news outlet called Alpha News, uh, run by some other, other friends of mine. And Kyle, more than anybody else, has been covering the riots that have exploded in Minneapolis and St. Paul over the last week. Kyle, welcome to the Dan Proft Show. Thanks for having me. I want to start, Kyle, by just talking about your role in this. How many nights now have you been out there in the middle of the night covering these riots? Well, we've been on the ground pretty much all night for three nights now, starting Wednesday going into Thursday when we got some very shocking exclusive footage. Uh, You'll remember that that's the night when rioters burned down a six-story construction project as well as several other significant buildings around the 3rd Precinct uh, right here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And that night, uh, we were the only news crew on the ground. When the fires started burning, all the local media pulled out, and uh, we were there documenting with Alpha News. So you were doing FaceTime Live, right? Yep, we were uh, going live right to our Facebook page. As well as tweeting uh, video as you, as you, as you took it uh, through the night. And this night was one of the most dramatic uh, nights, really, in the history of, of, of this metropolitan area. Uh, rioters completely took over a portion of the city of Minneapolis. Police were ineffective, outnumbered. Uh, As you say, they burned down a six or seven story building, burned it to the ground. That was going to be subsidized housing. It was under construction. Right. Nice going rioters. Uh, But most shockingly, they drove the police out of the third precinct station and they burned that to the ground. And you guys were the ones who were there to record it. Yeah, and uh, throughout that entire situation, what we did not see was police responding in a significant way to the rioters. At one point, I saw a child, probably no older than maybe the third grade, walking over broken glass to uh, help her mother loot a liquor store while the police line was literally feet away. We saw people uh, forming car lines to move uh, looted goods out of Target, again, within visual range of police. And when uh, when the fires started burning, uh, those were also within visual range of police. And it was shocking to know that uh, the police simply did not have the manpower to contend with the with the anarchy that we were seeing there, uh, which was perhaps the most terrifying element of the whole situation was just how completely out of control it was. And then we also went into a lot of the buildings, uh, the target that was looted. Uh, that was one of the first things that the media sort of got a hold of was that target that was looted. I know that uh, earlier in the day, Fox News was paying attention to that. And we actually went inside that target where rioters were setting fires and and smashing cash registers and there was no police anywhere to be seen. And Kyle, that was one of the most shocking items that, that you've that you filmed there because it's late at night. This is a target store. It is completely trashed. I mean, yeah. it was a scene of devastation. 
and and it was you and the looters. I mean, there was nobody, no police. Officer. It was, you know, no. these these people would have a shopping cart would go by with electronic goods in it that they were just wheeling right out of the store, mm-hmm. and there was nobody there to record what was going on except you on behalf of Alpha News. Were, were you scared doing that? Well, I think we were more scared once we left. So uh, what happened was the situation started to calm down a little bit in the very early hours of the morning. We're talking, you know, three thirty, four in the morning. And uh, we had just gotten done talking to some tobacco shop owners uh, that were actually defending their own business. Uh, they were very interesting people. And uh, we had just gotten done speaking with them. And we were on our way out, uh, out of the 3rd Precinct area. And uh, we heard gunshots. We looked over and I actually saw the last muzzle flash from that first volley of fire. And then I guess the people that uh, the shooters were shooting at started running in our direction. So then the next uh, volley of fire was actually fired in our direction as we were running away. And uh, we ran through a cloud of tear gas that the police had then dispersed. And after maybe about half a mile of running, we kind of sat down to recollect our bearings. And then we realized uh, how scared we should have been. Yeah, you were actually getting shot at. Yeah. At least the shots ringing out in your direction as the police are ducking for cover and everybody's fleeing away from the gunfire. I'll bet your mother was really happy when she's – because you filmed that. I mean, this is some of the most striking footage that you got. Yeah, we got that all on camera. We weren't live streaming at that exact moment, but there is footage – of those shots uh, being fired. And yeah, I, I can tell you my family was a little bit less than pleased with that scene. <laughs> I can only imagine. Now, so so as the evenings have gone on, uh, tell our audience, if you would, Kyle, we're talking here with Kyle Hooten of Alpha News. Uh, how, how has the situation evolved? It's gotten more under control, right? Yeah, the situation's gotten more under control, but it seems like the emphasis has gone away from uh, the the death of George Floyd. Uh, in the very beginning, we saw people protesting and chanting and holding signs, you know, calling for justice against police brutality. And then we saw a sharp move uh, towards rioting and looting. And then we started seeing individuals that looked like Antifa coming up on scene. And that, they, those people look very different than the rioters and the looters. They're a little bit more organized. A lot of them have plate carriers. A lot of them have medical kits. Uh, they're all dressed in black block, and their objectives are very different. They're not trying to steal the flat-screen TV. They're actually working more actively to incite chaos. And uh, those individuals in the last 48 hours have uh, been hindered significantly by the police and the National Guard. Just last night, we watched a group of I would say 50 to 75 of those Antifa-esque individuals getting arrested by a 35W on-ramp. So, so let's walk through this for our, our listeners, Kyle, who probably haven't followed the story in detail coming out of, out of Minneapolis and St. Paul. So in the first night, and you, you correct me if I'm getting this narrative wrong, but it, it, at least for that first night, it mm-hmm. was the city of Minneapolis that was in charge, city cops, and the mayor of Minneapolis, Jacob Fry, the boy mayor, I call him, mm-hmm. the, the young guy, totally unqualified for the job. Uh, was was in charge of the response, and and that was the night when the third precinct station was was captured by the rioters and burned down. Right? That was the night that the businesses around the third precinct station were burned. So that's the night that we saw that six story subsidized housing okay. go down, and that's the night we saw the Target looting. Gotcha. All right. So so it was the second night. The second when, night when when in that same area of Minneapolis, mm-hmm. they actually captured the third precinct station, drove out the police officers, burned it to the ground. Right. And it was after that that our governor Tim Walls. Mm-hmm. Uh, did a pre- press conference and described the mayor's efforts as what? Abject failure, I think he said. Yeah, I think there was a statewide recognition at that point that we were doing something wrong when a police station uh, fell to rioters and looters. It's <laughs> just unbelievable. And so how did things change then when, when the governor got into the act and now he says, I'm in charge? 
Right. So as soon as the governor kind of got involved and declared that the National Guard could move out, uh, we saw vehicles mobilizing into the city and we did see guardsmen sort of active in the area. But we didn't see, um, you know, the guardsmen actually interacting with the protesters and the rioters very much. It was not until President Donald Trump declared Antifa a terrorist organization that we started seeing the guard take a more active hands on role helping round these people up. So one thing that happened, I think, Kyle, is that is that uh, Governor Walls did mobilize some National Guardsmen, but it was a very small number. Yes. It was in the hundreds. And uh, and the first night uh, when we had some National Guard presence, uh, the the riots continued, the arson continued, the looting, the looting continued. And, and I think Walls gave a press conference where he said um, – uh, I didn't realize, you know, <laughs> we're outnumbered. He said there were more of them than there are of us. Yeah. <laughs> kind of a frightening admission for the governor of the state to make. And then the last two nights then, I think that was three nights ago, and then in the last two nights, uh, the, the, there have been more and more National Guardsmen deployed. Is that right? It absolutely is. And one tactic that we've seen the National Guard employing is dividing and conquering. Uh, so we've seen them split the looters and the rioters so that they can't get the mob energy they really need to be burning things and destroying things. Uh, and the streets are, are are practically empty compared to how they were, uh, especially back on Wednesday night. We did some driving around the city uh, last night, and we saw that there were small groups of people, you know, three, four people lighting a bonfire in the street or trying to break into a building, but nothing compared to what we've seen in, in previous nights because the National Guard has been so effective at suppressing those mobs and uh, keeping those large crowds from forming. Uh, before the National Guard was on scene, we saw a group of, I would estimate maybe 1,500 to 2,000 people outside the 5th precinct, uh, presumably intending to burn it like they did the 3rd precinct. But since the National Guard's come on scene, uh, crowds that large have not been able to form, and it seems like police precincts are no longer under threat of destruction. So one thing that's happened, Kyle, that this has been a terrible series of events, there's no question about it, but but... If you want to look on the bright side, there there, there has not been uh, – there's been violence in the sense of, you know, uh, arson and that kind of thing. But um, the National Guard and the police, they haven't actually had to shoot anybody, uh, right? No. Uh, they've definitely deployed non-lethal ordnance. We've seen rubber bullets. We've seen paint markers. We've seen pepper balls. We've seen tear gas. But no. Uh, to my knowledge, police have not shot anybody. And so with as much destruction as has been going on, there has not been the kind of loss of human life – uh, that one might have feared. And I don't, have there been many injuries? Have you been able to observe that? Yeah, there have been some injuries, but for the most part, the looters and the rioters haven't really been doing violence against each other. The most significant injury I think I saw was uh, a journalist, a friend of mine, got shot with a rubber bullet. But uh, no, we, we haven't been seeing a catastrophic loss of human life. Uh, thank the Lord for it. So we're going to go to a break. We're going to come back with more uh, from Kyle Hooten. And when we return, I want to talk about a question that a lot of people are wondering, and that is, who are these people? Who are these rioters and looters? We'll be right back. From behind time we stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Kyle Hooten. Kyle is a 21-year-old college student who has been far and away the most effective journalist covering these riots in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Uh, Kyle, kudos to you for that. Uh, on you. behalf of uh, 
Alpha News, which I describe as a renegade news service. But thank goodness you're out there with the camera and documenting what's really going on. Cal, as you know, one of the big controversies right now is who are these guys? Uh, the, the, the local authorities from the governor on down uh, said, oh, these are not Minnesotans. These are outside agitators. There's even been kind of an insane claim. They're trying to propagate that it's white supremacists who are who are carrying out these these race riots. I don't know. I don't think anybody's going to believe that. But you've seen more of this than anybody, literally. How would you answer that question? Who are these guys? Well, it seems to me like these people know the area pretty well. It seems like they know each other. Um, they know where to go. They know which neighborhoods to be in. And a lot of people are actually operating in their own communities, which sort of compounds the tragedy uh, of their destruction. But uh, I, for one, do not believe the governor's claim that the majority of these people are from out of state, but I do think that there is an out-of-state contingency. Has that contingent been growing over the course of the of the riots? Well, I, I would say that the makeup of the crowd has been shifting, and we've been seeing more Antifa and more organization, and a lot less uh, what appears to me to be sort of grassroots anti-police brutality activism. Um, we know that Antifa is highly organized and they are capable of mobilizing people across the country. And, you know, as the days have gone on and they've had more time to organize that mobilization effort, you know, we've seen the demographics of the crowd change and we see a lot more of these these white kids dressed in black block, uh, you know, with what looks to be uh, Antifa implements of anarchy. So what's the racial composition? And again, has that changed over the five or six nights of, uh, of, of rioting and looting? It's absolutely changed. Uh, in the very beginning, I was there on you know Wednesday night going into Thursday morning, and basically everybody we saw was black. Uh, there was some white activists there holding protest signs sort of in the daytime, and then as the night dragged on and the fire started and the looting accelerated, those individuals left along with every other media outlet. And uh, it was, I would say... 95% black, but now we've seen it shift and we're seeing a lot more of these kind of preppy white kids that dress up like Antifa and go out into the streets with their little bandanas and they're, they're agitating and we've seen them attempt to organize and they're talking about revolution and it has really shifted the focus away um, from justice for George and towards let's, you know, smash the pillars of American society. Yeah, so that's really interesting. So in the beginning... Obviously, looting and arson are not legitimate activities, but, right. but at least your impression was that it really was something that was growing out of this uh, uh, George Floyd uh, death. Right. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was members of the African-American community here in the Twin Cities that were upset that another black person was killed by police. Of course, you know, rioting, looting, burning down a low-income housing project doesn't help them you know, fight police brutality, but that did seem to be... Uh, what got them into the streets. Whereas, not, whereas over time, it became more 2468, organize and smash the state. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, if you look at the graffiti, it's shifted. It's shifted. In the beginning, we saw a lot of F the police, cops are pigs, only good cop is a dead cop kind of thing. And now the graffiti has shifted to anarchy symbols, you know, the, the, the symbol of Antifa. Uh, it's shifted to anti-state slogans in general. There's a heavy anti-capitalism bent uh, to a lot of the activities now, which is definitely not what we were seeing before when people were stealing flat screens from Target. Right. Uh, and so in, in the, if you look at last night, for example, are we t in terms of the racial composition mm -hmm. of, the, of, the, of the crowd, um, putting aside who's doing what, but just to the people right. you'd see in the middle of the night, is it 50-50 now, black and white, or wh how would you guesstimate it? 
So last night I was at an on-ramp near I-35, I think on Washington Street, and uh, I was actually amongst a group of protesters slash rioters as the National Guard and the police moved in to arrest them. And when I was milling around in the crowd, kind of talking to these people, trying to get a lay of the land, I noticed that it was probably almost 50-50 split between uh, black people and white people. And again, the, the the white kids were just so classic Antifa. I saw a lot of guys wearing plate carriers. That's a, that's a bulletproof vest with no shirt, with black cargo pants, with a red bandana. And they always kind of have this costume that they wear, you know, and, and, and all the white kids were in the costume and they weren't talking about police brutality. They weren't talking about any of that. They were organizing amongst themselves and they were describing, you know, where's the police line? What's our escape route? How are we going to resist today? A very different crowd than we've seen in previous nights. No, I know one thing that you've done is you've been bring these uh, these riots is is uh, rather courageously walking up to rioters and talking yeah, to them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, have you had a chance to do that with any of these young uh, white guys that you describe as, as being kind of Antifa like? Have you had a chance to, to talk with them? Absolutely. You know, we've been a little bit hesitant to go on the live stream in the last 24 hours, maybe 30 hours, because we've heard uh, that people are hunting us based on that stream. We've gotten several texts that say, you know, hey, watch your back. Members of the crowd are using your live stream to locate you because they don't really like Alpha News. So we were off the live stream for the majority of yesterday, but uh, I, I did go around sort of honestly dressed like Antifa a little bit and, and talked to some of these people. And uh, yeah, they, they, were, they were very forthright about their motives. They told me what tactics to use. One guy told me where the police are, how to avoid them. Uh, one guy made sure he, he kind of went over what I was carrying. He's like, do you have a mask? Do you have... Uh, spray paint. I did not. Do you have milk? You know, he was kind of checking me, milk. getting me ready for what's, what's the milk for? Milk uh, neutralizes the tear gas. If you get tear gas in your eyes and you pour milk in there, it fixes it immediately. It's really incredible, actually. So, 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 were you able to get a fix on who these people are? I mean, where they came from? What could you find out? No, I, I've been hesitant to ask people where they're from because I think that might paint me as media a little bit more than I really want to be painted as a journalist. But um, we saw that the governor claimed uh, a couple nights ago that like, something like 84% of these people were from out of state. Now, I did hear from a source uh, at the Minneapolis-St. Paul airport that there was a significant contingency of people that looked like protesters flying in a couple days ago. But, uh, you know, it, it doesn't look like there was enough people flying in to compose 84% of the crowd. Also, CARE 11 pulled some jail records and discovered that that number is also inaccurate. Well, in fact, yeah, I think it was after Saturday night that they got records from the Hennepin County and Ramsey County jails, mm -hmm. and um, uh, and I think it was flipped. The governor said 80% out-of-towners, uh, at least based on the residents of people who got arrested Saturday night, it was mm -hmm. more like 80% uh, Twin Cities residents and 20% uh, from other places. And those 20% from other places, I would not be surprised if they were sort of these professional organizer rioter types. Uh, I was looking at a live stream out of D.C. the other night, and you saw Antifa individuals riling up the crowd and giving them directions like go burn that car, go move over here. So we can't ignore that, you know, 20% of these people could be from out of state because that that's significant. That means, you know, one in five of these individuals flew in from out of state with the purpose of agitating. Speaking of coming from out of state, there was a news story that Al Sharpton was coming to town. I haven't heard anything about that since. Have you seen hide or hair of Al Sharpton? No, no, I haven't even heard murmurs about it. This is the first <laughs> I've heard. That's news to me. Yeah, not playing a very active role in any event. 
Kyle, we got under a minute to go here. Sure. Where, where do you see this going now? It seems like it's dying down. Are you going to be back out there tonight? What, what, what do you think the future holds? I mean, we have seen a brilliantly strong response from National Guard and Minneapolis law enforcement. Uh, I, I think a lot of that started when President Donald Trump declared Antifa a terror organization and sort of empowered them to take a more active role in locking these people down. I think that you know some mild looting and fires are going to continue, but we're not going to see anything like the third precinct being overrun again, and we're not going to see anything like those 5,000-man crowds that we've seen in previous nights. Well, Kyle Hooten, uh, thanks for being with us here in studio, and keep up the fantastic work. It, it's great to see that there's at least one real journalist uh, getting the public information about what's going on. So Thank th- you. Thanks for being that. with us. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are joined now by Hans von Spakowski. And Hans, you're an expert in a number of things, but one of them is voter fraud. And and that's a, voter fraud is an interesting topic because half the country is really upset about it, really concerned uh, concerned about it. The other half of the country is in favor of it. So, you know, that's kind of the uh, that's kind of the dichotomy as I see it. Hans, one of the things going on right now is this movement toward voting by mail, and a lot of people uh, on on the on the left side of the spectrum are saying it's too dangerous to go to the polls because of the COVID virus, and we got to have everybody voting by mail and and a lot of people are concerned that this opens up a huge possibility for voter fraud is 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 that right uh it does and and i think it's a push that is both unwise and unnecessary and i'll tell you quickly why um look nobody disputes we need absentee ballots right we we need them for people who are sick or too physically disabled to get to the polls we certainly need them for our military personnel who are overseas but um the problem with them is that they are the most vulnerable ballots when it comes to everything from being a stolen to intimidation and pressure uh, being put on voters uh, in their homes to the vagaries of the of the postal system. And the reason, of course, for all of this is that, look, you've got no election officials supervising what's happening at a home. And I can cite you case after case after case involving absentee ballot fraud in which everything happened from um, folks' uh, ballots being stolen out of the mail to uh, vote harvesters, uh, third parties, showing up at people's doors and doing everything from filling out their ballot for them to taking their ballot, changing it, sometimes forging signatures or putting uh, pressure and intimidation on the voters to do it. And then add on top of that the fact that – Look, you know, in general, the U.S. Postal Service does a pretty good job, but they handle a lot of mail. And think about uh, all the mail that gets misdirected all the time. I- I'm sure there's not a-, a-, a listener to this show that hasn't had mail misdelivered to their house that is meant for somebody else. So do you really want to hand your ballot over to the U.S. Postal Service and hope that it gets delivered? Um, listen, the Wisconsin primary, April 7th. Uh, just this year, they did have a lot of people uh, vote by mail. Uh, you can easily go and find a story of how they found tubs full of absentee ballots in a mail processing facility after the election that had not been delivered. And that's the kind of problems you, you, you face with this. 
Hans, let me stop you there because there's one thing I don't I don't really understand about vote by mail, and that is how do people get the ballots if you don't go to the polls? You know, do they mail out these ballots with the idea that the voters will then mail them back? Is that how it works? Yeah, yes, and in that is that's the second part of the problem. Forty five states and D.C. we have absentee ballots, but in five states they've switched over to all mail ballots. So Oregon, Washington being prime examples of it. And what they do in Oregon, for example, is they simply mail an absentee ballot to every single registered voter. Well, now the problem with that is, and John, you and I know this, uh, registered voter lists are in horrible shape. They're all terrible. Over the They're terrible. Thousands yeah. of those people are dead. Many of them have moved. I mean, these lists are, are, are terrible. So think about something. Ballots are a very valuable commodity. Think about ballots arriving in neighborhoods uh, at people's homes with people who used to live there or people who died, and then think about, well, hopefully most people will throw those away, but other folks might uh, be tempted to vote them, plus um, vote harvesters, again, third parties, people work for candidates' parties, may go through neighborhoods collecting those ballots. I actually pulled the numbers on Oregon, or Oregon, all-mail ballots. Um, in the 2018 election, the state officially listed that over 170,000 of the ballots they mailed out were undeliverable. In other words, they came back from the Postal Service saying, well, nobody lives at that address. There were over 870,000 ballots in Oregon that are listed as unknown. That means unaccounted for. That means election officials put them in the mail to send to election officials and then never heard another word about them. Now, maybe the voters got them and decided they just didn't want to vote. But the point is, we don't know what happened to them. Hansi, you've got just 30 seconds here. How big a threat is this? How many states do you think are going to implement this uh, vote-by-mail scheme? Well, unfortunately, a number of states already said they're going to do it like California, but Look, uh, again, Wisconsin, April 7th, 300,000 people voted in person, all the safety protocols, same things that we have in our grocery stores and drugstores we go to. And there's already reports out saying no spike in COVID-19 infections in, in Wisconsin. Hans von Spakowski, excuse me, thank you so much for being on the Dan Proft Show. And uh, we'll be right back after these messages. Electric Avenue, and then we'll take it higher. Oh, Exposing wanna... political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We are joined now by Dominic Green. Dominic is the life and arts editor of Spectator USA and also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. Dominic, thanks for being on the program. Hello, John. It's great to be here. Dominic, I am coming to you from Minnesota, which, as you know, is the home of Ilhan Omar. And you recently in The Spectator reviewed her autobiography. She's a little young to be writing an autobiography. What is she? 35, I think. In any event, what, what, what did you make of, of her account of herself? Well, I didn't believe most of it, or rather, what I don't believe is the stuff she didn't talk about. This was 
not the typical politician's autobiography. This was the typical fraudster's autobiography. It made very little sense even. Of course, everybody has the right to make up their own life story. But when you're running for office, which you soon again will be, you cannot make things up. You have to answer serious questions. And this is an autobiography that answered none of the very serious questions that have been raised about Ilan Omar. And a lot of those questions have to do with her kind of tangled personal history. You know, she's been married multiple times, uh, seemingly to two different men at the same time, filing tax returns with the guy that she wasn't married to while she was married to somebody else. And, and I think most of our listeners probably know at least some of the basics of that story. How does this all come out in her autobiography? Well, in her autobiography, she simply skates over these questions. She says that her second marriage you know, was an elopement, a, a moment of folly, and is shot past in a paragraph. And, of course, that paragraph does not refer to the, all the documents, which, as you say, throw serious doubt into her motives at this point. There is good reason on the face of the documents to believe that the man who claims not to be her brother is her brother and that he and she colluded in a form of immigration fraud, of educational fraud. She um, doesn't mention in her book where the parties were living. She claims they were separated when they were not. And in, even in court, she has claimed, of course, not having seen her first husband for several years. And in fact, social media, subsequently scrubbed, has shown that she did. There are serious questions about the veracity of her account. And some of those questions are raised by documents that she put her signature to at the time. So putting her signature to something now, which, which says it never happened, it wasn't me, there is no question. This is not enough. This is, these are public documents. They've been dug up by very brave investigative journalists, and they deserve serious consideration. Yeah, as you may know, Dominic, I write for Powerline, and my partner on Powerline, Scott Johnson, is one of the, oh, three people, I think, who have really done the spade work on this and have uncovered, among other things, the, the documents you're talking about. And just quickly, what, what are some of those records that indicate that the official version of Omar's life is just not true? Well, firstly, the educational fraud claim, in effect, is, to my mind, extremely credible and, and should be examined further. It shows that the person who we have good reason to believe is her brother, though she, she has denied it, may have conducted a fraudulent marriage and, and, and may have defrauded the state um, in order for him and her to attend a university. And there is more. These are questions which, concerning any other public figure, the mainstream press would be applauding the bravery of the journalists who stood up to power and questioned what our elected representatives are up to. But in this case, they haven't, in fact. And I'm afraid to say that the Star Tribune in Minneapolis, which is a nationally known newspaper, has not risen to the job either. In At times, seemed to have been a party to this attempt to whitewash Omer's past. And Powerline's work has been tremendous in this respect. This has been solid, research, traditional journalism, as people keep saying they would like to have done. And yet when you do it and you ask a difficult question, it suddenly becomes um, tasteless or racist or a fantasy or a conspiracy or all the other things which Omar has called it. And to my mind, reading these documents, you know, I'm a trained historian. I'm used to reading government documents and so on. To my mind, these documents raise very serious questions that if they were addressed to the behavior of the man or woman in the street would lead to them being arrested and probably deported quite quickly if they were found to have committed any of these offenses. But in the case of an elected representative, there seems to be a different standard. And that doesn't seem to me to be equality before the law. This husband number two, uh, who's widely believed to be um, Omar's brother, I think his name is Ahmed uh, Elmi, 
he, he was living in London. Her family split apart when they left the refugee camp in Kenya. She came to America, but most of her family wound up in the United Kingdom. And her brother, Ahmed Elmi, came from the UK to the United States. And when he arrived in the Twin Cities, one of the things that Scott Johnson has found is that she introduced him to her friends in the Somali community as her brother. So the fact that he was her brother, that was not a surprise to anybody. But people um, that... <laughs> No, but it might be a, sub- a surprise to the immigration authorities. No, right. Um, but what those people didn't know, Dominic, was that they got married. That was the shock. Yes, and, and, and immigration <laughs> fraud is, is you know, widely practiced all over the world in immigrant communities, which by necessity, if they want to bring family members in, break the law. That's just the way it goes in many different countries. And when people are caught, they're caught. As far as I understand, that's how it is. Some of the most affecting chapters, in fact, the the, the only affecting chapters in Omar's book, to be fair to her, are those describing her early life. She's extremely vague also about the privileges uh, her family had and, and her grandfather had a high up position running a ministry in the government and she passes him off as a lighthouse keeper in effect in this account but nevertheless the descriptions of being caught in the middle of a civil war of having people shooting up the family compound of having to flee to kenya of surviving as as a child in a refugee camp there these are enormously powerful and affecting things to read and and i wouldn't uh, deny any of that and all of that does check out and as you say her family then split up and went different ways but the law being the law here just as in any other country, that that's a different matter. And I have enormous sympathy for the suffering of her and her family early in their life. But as somebody who immigrated legally into the United States, I, I don't see why other, anybody, in fact, should get a break for it. But what bothers me about Omar more than anything is her ingratitude. She was rescued from a refugee camp by the taxpayers of the United States. She was supported and educated by the taxpayers of the United States. And for whatever reason, she seems to hate this country. Does that come through in the autobiography? Um, it, yes, it does. She claims that she has an ideal of America, and then that's the one that she's aiming at. But it's very clear that the ideal she is aiming at is not held in common with the vast majority of her fellow Americans. And it's also clear from many of her statements uh, in this book and elsewhere that she doesn't really consider them to be her fellow Americans. And I think that is an enormous pity and a tragedy. I mean, as, as we know, and as you in Minneapolis will know better than most, there, there are many deep problems. But the United States remains an absolute beacon in many ways of, of freedom and integration between different races, religions and cultures. There is no other society on Earth where people generally do rub along as well, despite the variety of places they come from. And for Omar to say, well, that's not good enough. We must burn it down and start again. It seems to me to be um, it's ingratitude, but it's also completely. delusional and both of those things ingratitude and delusion are dangerous to everybody else Dominic can you stay with us for one more segment of course I'd love to the more you listen the more you'll know this is the Dan Proft Show We're back here with uh, Dominic Green on the Dan Prof Show. Dominic, you just a couple of days ago published a piece in The Spectator uh, titled Antifa's White Privilege. Obviously, this is right up to the moment. Uh, We've got riots that have been going on the last six nights here in the Twin Cities, and uh, it's being alleged that Antifa people are heavily involved, and and that's that's, uh, turning up across the country. President Trump, of course, has been attacking Antifa. 
Uh, t- tell us about this piece, and what, what do you mean, Dominic, by Antifa's white privilege? Well, Antifa and various other left-wing groups are always going on about white privilege as the greatest evil that there is in the United States today. But it seems to me that it is very much white privilege to think that you can leave your essentially comfortable hipster life, go to somebody else's neighborhood, somebody else who has less money, less opportunity, and then trash the place. And then go home and resume your life, get back to grad school, you know, keep waiting for your student loans to be written off. In other words, this is getting your kicks at somebody else's expense and knowing that the police will be less likely to shoot you is also a form of white privilege. So, yeah, I think it is. I think it's pretty shocking. And and although it's very hard to unpick this, it's clear that there are obviously uh, cities in which the local black rioters are predominating. And there are also cities, for instance, Boston, where I live, where it's very clear from the footage that most of the rioting was being done by middle-class, white, suburban people who, you, you know, this is not a novelty. They're, they may not all be Antifa, because Antifa is, a, is as much an idea as, as an outlet. But what they are doing is doing Antifa style. They're, you know, I mean, look, looking at the pictures and the feeds last night, these are college students turning up in black as if they're going to a fancy dress, fighting the police, smashing things up, and saying that they're doing this in the name of black people. But it's black people in the inner city who are going to carry the can for this, who are going to be living in these neighborhoods, which are going to be in ruin for 10, 20 years. In other words, 20 years' time, when these ex-rioting white middle-class people will be living themselves, in, you know, as their parents do, in the suburbs with mortgages, the people whose neighborhood has been destroyed will still be living with that consequence. And so that is white privilege, I would say. We're seeing some of that same duality uh, here in the Twin Cities in terms of who it is that's participating in these riots and, and so forth. And, and to your point, Dominic, um, there have been a lot of fires set here. A number of buildings have been burned, including the 3rd Precinct Station House, Minneapolis Police Department. But I think the biggest building that's burned down, seven, eight stories high, it was under construction. It was all subsidized housing. It was all going to be affordable housing for, for low-income people. That is a tragedy. They said and I fun. also say it is a tragedy for the police to allow a precinct house to be burned down, that there are certain things that have to be stated publicly uh, in terms of maintaining law and order, and one of them is that the police cannot afford to give ground beyond a certain point. So the destruction of social housing is something that will blight that neighborhood for decades, but so is the idea that when push comes to shove, it's all right to burn down the precinct. Yeah, on live television. That was one of the more shocking things that we've seen around here in a long time. Uh, Dominic, thank you very much for being on the program. We are going to go to a commercial break and return with more after these messages. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome, everyone, to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And unfortunately, we've got lots and lots to talk about. Uh, the news is, uh, is, is, is way too full uh, of events these days. The big news story of the spring, obviously, was the, uh, the COVID virus, the Wuhan virus, uh, the shutdown that, that uh, was imposed over almost the entire country as a result of, of that virus. 
And that was finally starting to ease. People are feeling like we're kind of coming out on the other side or getting to the end of the of the tunnel. And now in the, in the last week or less, um, the COVID story has really been eclipsed by the race riots that have broken out all across the country. I am coming to you right now from Minnesota. And, of course, Minnesota is where the George Floyd incident happened. Uh, it's the Minneapolis Police Department that, that came under fire. It was in the Twin Cities where the riots began that now have spread to many other major cities across the country. And we'll be talking a lot about that in, uh, in tonight's show. Uh, and, and, and those stories have, have come together in a sense because um, in the last two nights, an 8 o'clock p.m. curfew has been imposed uh, all across the Twin Cities metropolitan area. But it hardly made any difference because we're still shut down on account of the COVID epidemic. And so there isn't anywhere anybody could go after 8 p.m. that's open. No bars, no restaurants, no no gyms, no nothing. And so nobody really had any reason to be out of the house other than the looters and the, uh, and the arsonists. But we're going to start tonight's show talking about the COVID virus uh, and where we sit now with that kind of long-standing nightmare. And to help us understand it, we are joined right now by Dr. Ben Newman, virologist at uh, Texas A&M. Ben, thanks for being on the show. Hi, happy to be here. How can I help? Well, Ben, I think, I know you've written a lot about the uh, the coronavirus, and in fact, we're involved, in, I think, in naming the virus even. Uh, but I think That's that, right, yeah. It's SARS coronavirus 2. That, that's his proper name. Yeah, right, <laughs> like exactly. Kid that I really didn't want to have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Something you didn't want to go down in history for, I'm sure. But I think the question on everybody's mind now, uh, Dr. Newman, is, you know, we've, we've been shut down. And here in Minnesota, we've had a, a drastic shutdown order that still hasn't hasn't been eased. Uh, and and I think a lot of people want to know, uh, can we declare victory and move on? Is, is, it, is it time to put put America back to work? This is a good question. And yeah, like you say, it's not even just in America. The entire world is grappling with some version of this question. And it's always localized based on exactly what's going on, yeah, where and when you are. Um, so I think a good way we can look at this is rather than uh, looking at individual states, you can look at countries. So you've got the Sweden model, which is uh, basically what somewhere like uh, Florida or um, uh, Arizona yeah, <laughs> uh, have been putting into place, which is where you just say, you know, whatever, uh, um, let the weak die and uh, let's at least keep some of the economy open, uh, hoping that we can get through this. I think what we've seen on that, so the numbers coming in last week, we, we haven't seen as much talk about Sweden recently. And this is because the experiment has gone very, very badly over there. It's uh, essentially failed and it's over. And yeah, they're, they're in a very bad situation. So um, if you look at the numbers last week, uh, the average fatalities per million people, um, uh, Sweden was number one uh, in uh, additional fatalities above last year's numbers. Now, so let me pause you there for a second, Doctor Newman. Oh, yeah, have, have, have they surpassed people like Belgium, for example, that I think was at the top of that list for a long time? Belgium, yeah, Belgium had a problem early, and we think Belgium is probably where the virus got into Europe in the first place. The earliest sequences seem to track to uh, either Belgium or France, which they share a border, so that makes sense. 
Um, they have uh, since uh, had pretty good luck in knocking it down. The, the numbers, it depends which numbers you're looking at. So if you're looking at the number of positive cases, Sweden is not doing a great job of testing, and so they're not picking up the cases. But the one thing that's easiest to count, and this is easy to count even in different U.S. states, is the number of deaths. And so you can compare the number of deaths from this year to the number of deaths from this time last year. And you do this over uh, something like a seven-day or 14-day period. And there, there are websites out there that just automatically calculate these things every morning. And they'll show you there's a great big uh, peak that showed up right when COVID hit each of these places. That's, that's the real number. And what we know from that, we can extrapolate so that we know that in cases where we've caught every single case, like on that cruise ship, where they just tested everybody, whether they had symptoms or not, we know that the actual case uh, fatality rate is something like one and a half percent. And so in the U.S. right now, the case fatality rate depends which states you're looking at, but uh, there's somewhere between four percent and about eight percent which means that we're still not catching most of the cases. And so all the numbers that we're seeing, even the numbers that make it look like we're doing sort of a little bit better, are actually still just tip of the iceberg kind of numbers. And that's kind of what worries me uh, on this. I see the need for opening. And I think there are ways that we can open and actually have a working economy and people being fairly safe. And they're just those the same <laughs> stupid talking points uh, everybody's been mentioning since the beginning of this. It's just um, having tests available, like somebody coming to your work once a week and swabbing everybody there. Having a test in your neighborhood, testing center that can turn around results in a couple of hours rather than a couple of days. Um, good contact tracing, that's a thing that we're still grappling with, but there are some places that are doing it and other places that are doing uh, kind of poorly uh, at it. I think one other thing that you'll see in states that kind of uh, is determining which way a state is going is the rural-urban divide. And so I'm calling in from Texas this morning. Uh, this is what I can see the most. And right now in the cities in Texas, the, um, there are really strong measures in place, and the infection is very much under control. In all of the rest of the counties in Texas that don't have one of these big cities, the virus is growing very quickly. And so on average, because more people live in the cities, you see that the numbers are kind of coming down. But what you're really getting is the second wave. And the second wave is going to come from the countryside back into the cities as soon as the cities relax those restrictions. And so I think that's what we're worried about. But uh, masks, testing, and contact tracing can really block most of this and uh, get us through it. Well, let me ask this question then. For how long sure. <laughs> are we going to have to keep wearing these stupid masks? I mean, you go to a, a, a grocery store, and now they have a one-way-in and one-way-out, and they probably have little six-foot you know, apart spots on the floor. And I haven't seen anybody protesting against those. Wearing a mask has much more direct benefit both to you and everybody else because it's covering the hole where the virus both comes out and goes in. <laughs> and so, I don't know, people put up with all these other things, but for some reason, like we still take our shoes off at the airport in most places. But, yeah, a mask is like a bridge too far. That, that's the thing I don't understand because that's the one that actually has some chance of doing some good. Uh, as for how long we have to wear them, uh, we have to wear them probably until we get the U.S. down below um, 1,000 cases a day minimum. But, um, yeah, we're still around 20,000 cases a day, and that's the ones we're detecting, and that might be like a third of the ones that are out there. 
So we've got a ways to go. So don't throw away your, your masks yet, I guess, is the message. Let me ask you this question, Doctor. <laughs> Find a good one. Yeah. All right. If I, let me ask you this question. Uh, you know, there's such a variation between states. You look at California, they've got huge metropolitan areas, and yet they have been hit nowhere yeah. near as hard as some of the other states that have big cities. we got about a minute and a half here, Dr. Newman, but can, can you explain that? What's the reason? Um, in L.A., uh, rather in California right now, most of the cases are coming from, so it's shifted from city centers to suburbs and poorer areas. And the overall numbers in California have been steadily rising, even though um, they've done a real good job of testing. And I think probably in California, they're catching a few more of the um, actual cases, uh, isn't they detecting them, um, rather than uh, uh, missing them as they do in most other places. What was the rest of the question? Well, just really why uh, why California has, has done so well. They're, they're urban areas. So they have big cities there. San Francisco, for example. Yeah, just haven't the, seen that the, the urban areas have done well, and they've been, uh, they've been real strict on mask wearing and, um, yeah, just making sure that people do. Uh, same thing with uh, New York City. They've, they've done really well. And, uh, yeah, I guess we were trying to model on South Korea and China before, but now we can just look to big cities in the U.S. and say, you know what, it's worked in these places. They had horrendous problems, and that's the way they managed to control it. This is a virus we can still totally beat, and we can probably beat it you know, before Christmas if, if we were to really, as a nation, get on the same page and set our minds to this and get everybody in a mask. It probably wouldn't even take that long. It's just the uh, sort of piecemeal approach that's really uh, weighing us down right now. All right, Dr. Ben Newman, thanks very much for being on the show. We're going to run to a commercial break. Why don't we steal seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome everybody back to the dan proft show i'm john hinderocker from powerline filling in for dan tonight and i'm coming to you from from minnesota and, uh, you know, it always seems funny to me because the Twin Cities are kind of a, you know, medium-sized, uh, low-key, Midwestern uh, urban area uh, where sometimes you feel like not much happens. Uh, and yet it seems like time after time we find ourselves uh, in the middle of an explosive national news story. And, of course, that is going on right now because it was here in Minneapolis where the incident occurred uh, that has triggered, uh, you know, this this outbreak of race riots all across the United States. We're going to be talking more about that over the uh, over the course of the show. But I want to just talk a little bit now about some of the history uh, as as it relates to specifically this location uh, of the Twin Cities and in particular uh, Minneapolis. And one of the things going on here is that the Minneapolis Police Department has got a rather troubled history that goes back a long way. I mean, we're talking about uh, about decades. And there have been a number, several, uh, kind of racially tinged uh, incidents that have involved the Minneapolis Police Department in, in recent years. And, and people are kind of uh, sensitized to that. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason why uh, we saw this explosion of uh, – 
of demonstrations and protests and so on, followed very quickly by uh, rioting, looting, arson. Uh, and 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 I think I think it's interesting to compare the last uh, internationally known uh, police shooting uh, here in the Minneapolis Police Department uh, with what's happening right now, because that happened just two or three years ago. And you've probably heard about it. I'm sure you, you followed the story at the time. Uh, it involved this woman, Justine Damon, uh, who actually was from Australia. She was living in uh, in a nice area of uh, South Minneapolis. And, and she thought she heard a possible screaming coming from the alley behind her house, and it sounded to her like there could be a sexual assault in progress, and so she called the police. And a, a Minneapolis Police Department squad car uh, reported in answer to her call, and they drove down the alley, didn't see anything amiss. This is late at night. Uh, they don't see anything amiss, and then they amiss, and then they stop. And, and, and she, 40-year-old woman, uh, white, uh, wearing her pajamas, uh, carrying her cell phone because she's the one that called the police. She comes over and approaches the squad car. And as she approaches the squad car on the driver's side, uh, the guy, the police officer, Mohammed Noor was his name, sitting in the passenger seat, pulled out his gun and shot her, killed her. And it was the most incredible and incomprehensible shooting by a police officer, I think, in, you know, in, in, in history. And, and that officer, eight hours, eight months went by of investigation before they finally charged that officer, Mohammed Noor. And, of course, he was black. And during that time, there were no race riots. Uh, there was a lot of controversy for obvious reasons, but there was no rioting. There were, and, and, and nobody played up a racial angle uh, when, when the black officer shot the, uh, shot the completely innocent, you know, uh, and non-threatening um, a white woman. So, so that was a real black eye for the Minneapolis Police Department, but it was one that, that had a very different sequel from what we're seeing now. Well, now if you fast forward uh, two or three years, we have the George Floyd incident. And by the way, after the Mohammed Noor incident, uh, they fired the police chief of the Minneapolis Police Department and got a new police chief who happens to be African-American. So, so now we fast forward to the George Floyd incident, and, and you've undoubtedly seen at least some of the video. By the time this is over, there's going to be a lot of video. There, there's cameras recording this, police body cams, cameras at the intersection, security cameras on the street, uh, you know, all kinds of and, – and, 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 of course, the cell phones from passersby. And that's the one that so many people have seen. And after what started out as a routine kind of, of stop of, of this guy, George Floyd, um, the officers perceived that he was, uh, seemed to be uh, on drugs or intoxicated or something. It was acting odd. And, and they actually called a, uh, an ambulance. And, and, and this, this video is running uh, while they are waiting for the ambulance to come. And during that time, for something like eight minutes, one of these police officers, a guy named Derek Chauvin, uh, is kneeling on George Floyd, who's on the street, on the ground, and he appears to have his, uh, his knee on, on George Floyd's throat. Uh, and uh, and, uh, and passersby are, are stopping and commenting on that and, and telling the police, hey, you know, don't, don't kneel on him. He's having trouble breathing. Uh, and so forth. And, and, of course, as it turns out, by the time the, the ambulance gets there, uh, Floyd is dead. And uh, because of the cell phone video, uh, this, this whole incident just went around the country and really around the world uh, overnight. And um, 
And within 48 hours after the incident, uh, the uh, Hennepin County authorities had criminally charged this guy, Derek uh, Chauvin, uh, with th- third-degree murder. And, um, uh, and he was part of, there were four police officers on the scene, uh, two squad cars. There, there were two white officers, one black officer, one Asian officer. Derek Chauvin uh, happens, to be, uh, happens to be white. And there's a lot we don't know about this incident. You know, you, it's one of the things about video. You, you watch a six-minute video and you think, well, I know everything there is to know. You know, you think, I've seen it. I know what happened. I know who's guilty. But there's a lot that we don't know, including the cause of death. There's a preliminary report from the Hennepin County Medical Examiner that says that he didn't see any indication of asphyxiation or strangulation. Everybody thinks that, that this guy Floyd died of asphyxiation because the officer is kneeling on his throat. Well, maybe. You know, maybe, but, but the preliminary report from the medical examiner says, I don't see any sign of, as, of asphyxiation. And, and we also know now from the charging document, the criminal complaint, that uh, George Floyd was complaining about not being able to breathe while he was standing next to the squad car. So it wasn't just a function of the guy kneeling on his throat. He, he had already previously been complaining about ability to breathe. And one of the things that we're still waiting for is the toxicology report. That takes some days. And so they're checking for drugs uh, in Floyd's system. So, so it's one of those uh, – it, it, it's kind of a feature of the modern world that people see a video and, and they think the video speaks for itself. And uh, I know what happened because I saw the video. And, and uh, it, the, the truth is that there's a lot we don't know. Now, I, I'm not defending the – the way the guy's kneeling on Floyd. I don't think anybody has defended that. That's not considered normal, proper police technique. Uh, and it's obviously been justly criticized. And any time a guy dies, well, there's four police officers standing around. That's a very, very bad deal. And nobody is trying to sugarcoat that. But I think the point is that, um, that we really, there's a lot about this incident that we really don't know. And in the meantime, we've got rioters and arsonists uh, taking over the cities, taking over Minneapolis, taking over St. Paul. Low point was when the rioters captured the third precinct uh, station, uh, Minneapolis uh, Police Department station, uh, drove out the police officers and burned the precinct station to the ground. I mean, that's the kind of, of, of violence that we have been experiencing here in the Twin Cities. And we're going to be talking more about that as the uh, as the show goes on. And one question that's being widely asked here locally is, who are these people? And who are these people? And and the local authorities were very quick to say it's outside agitators. You know, they don't, they don't want to say that these are Minnesotans burning down the precinct station and so on. But that's, that's another wide open question. You know, who, who's doing this? So we're going to go to a break and come back with more after this. Don't you know I'm still standing better than I ever did? Looking like a true survivor, feeling like a little kid. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by John Tamney. John is the editor of Real Clear Markets, the vice president of FreedomWorks, and a senior economic advisor to Toreador Research and Trading. Uh, John Tamney, thanks for being on the program. Hey, John. Thanks for having me on. John, I want to start out asking you about a, a column that you've got uh, on Real Clear Markets. It's dated uh, May 30th. 
and and the title of the column is provocative. Uh, it, it, the title is COVID nineteen infection or losing your job. Which would you which would you prefer? Tell us, John, about the the question that you're posing there. Well, it, it's a question that came up in when I saw the headline, Blaze headlines, uh, 40 million Americans plus out of work. Um, I've lost jobs before. It is devastating. It's something that stays with you for a very long time. But I still dream about a job that I lost in 2001. And so in asking that, I was asking the question, would you prefer – the trauma that comes with that, 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 that comes frequently with a loss of confidence and all sorts of other things that stay with you for a while versus getting sick. And I asked that question about getting sick because I'd recently seen an interview with Fred Smith, the founder of FedEx. Um, turns out, as you ex- would expect, that he's got a pretty big operation in Wuhan, 907 employees. And these are people who had obviously been exposed to it for quite some time. And, and he was saying that we tested every single one of them, four tested positive, two errantly, but every, everyone's fine. I was thinking, this is not anecdote. This is a story of a big employer in Wuhan, no one dead. It's kind of a strong signal that while people get sick from the virus, they don't die from it. And if you give me the choice of being sick for a few weeks versus losing a job, I will take the sickness any day of the week, because the devastation that comes with it is, is really, you know, it's painful and it's long lasting. I want to stay with China for a couple of minutes, John. Um, you know, a lot of people, including me, have expressed skepticism about the Chinese data. You know, how many deaths, how many cases and so on. They obviously were, at least I think it's obvious, that they were dishonest early on about the spread of the disease and, and with the World Health Organization and so forth. But but what do you make overall of what we know of the Chinese experience? Um, what I make of it is, this, is, is, again, let's just assume that's true. Most people have agreed. Uh, if you go to Real Clear Politics site, there's an asterisk nest with Chinese numbers. They're not trusted. Okay, but so what? If the deaths had been in some massive kind of number, we would have known about it. If you go back to many people uh, listening uh, saw the HBO show Chernobyl, this was the 1980s in a very isolated, hidden country. Yet everyone, the, the, the Soviets couldn't keep news about what happened in Chernobyl off the front pages of newspapers around the country. So fast forward to the present, one-fifth of all of Apple's iPhone sales are in China. Uh, Huawei is the biggest seller of iPhones in the world. This is a very connected internet-connected population. If there had been death in China, no amount of, of, of hiding from the authorities there could, could have obscured that truth. And so when people pretend that, oh, yeah, that, that they hid some major story from us and we're all suffering from it now, oh, please, that's giving politicians way too mu- easy of a way out. There's no way if, if the death rate had been high there that we wouldn't know about it now. I remember there's a news story uh, some weeks ago now where Somebody had figured out that there were there were shipments of urns into the Wuhan area, and so that was being taken as evidence of a lot more uh, unreported deaths because uh, there must be a lot of cremations going on. But your point, obviously, John, is you can't hide thousands and thousands and thousands of of dead people. There's no way. There's the communication is too rapid nowadays. It's interesting with with the Chinese because there's still an effort to censor there. What they find, however, is that whenever they censor something, they're already too late. 
Uh, we hear in the United States, of course, about how the history books are scrubbed of the 1981, uh, 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre. Okay, but what, what is always left out of this is that anyone in China with, a passable, uh, with passable computer skills can go on the internet in China and read all about what happened in 1989. Anyone in China can join Facebook. Anyone can use Google. If you know anything about computers, you can do that. And so this idea – that they hid something major from us, and so we were caught unawares by a virus. We weren't, oh, please. That is such an excuse for politicians who panicked and who panicked in a major way. We would have known long before March if it were a lethal disease because there's no way, given the nature of communications today, that the Chinese could have hidden it. And so I think it's an important way of saying we knew in, in March, we knew when they started locking down that while – people were getting sick, they generally weren't dying. And so why did we have to make these monumental errors and knowing what we knew? We're going to go to some commercial messages now, and we will be right back with more from John Tammy. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We are back with John Tamney on the Dan Proft Show. John, before the break, you were talking about the fact that uh, our politicians should have known really for a long time, uh, had a pretty good idea of the parameters of this COVID-19 disease. Uh, yes, it's a disease, obviously not a good thing. Yes, it's contagious, but, but not very many people die from it. And, and one of the things that I've been writing uh, – uh, for for a while now is in in my opinion the devastation caused by the shutdown of of economic and social life all across America it, it vastly exceeds the damage that is done by the virus itself. Do you agree with that? Oh, without question. Uh, there's nothing more agonizing on a, on an emotional level, but also financial level, to lose one's job. It, 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 as mentioned in the previous segment, it stays with you forever. But it should also be said that the the notion that you should shut down the economy in response to a virus is the ultimate non sequitur. I mean, let's go back to the 1860s. If you got if, if you had as good of a chance of dying as living if you're born in 1860. If you were in battle and you're shot in the, in the abdomen or chest, they left you to die. There's no chance. If you if you broke your leg, one in three chances of death. But they were going to amputate either way. Broken hip, dead. Cancer, dead. Pneumonia was the captain of man's death. World War One was the first war ever in which more people died from guns and bombs than from pneumonia. And so why doesn't any of this happen today? Why do we expect most kids to live? Why can, pe can people get sustained major injuries and live? Because of economic growth. Economic growth made it possible for people to live longer and longer. Economic growth made it possible for us to discover diseases that before were never discoverable. Alzheimer's disease is a consequence of all this economic progress that made it possible for us to come to new cures that enabled us to elongate lives. 
And so if the question – and this is why I've always said it didn't matter if it was 2.2 million lives or if it was going to be uh, 10,000 lives. The answer is always leave the economy open because if you fear a virus, the only answer is economic growth. Yet politicians in their infinite wisdom decided to meet a virus that they said was, was very perilous with massive economic contraption. I mean seriously, have they lost their minds? Historians will, will marvel at the shocking stupidity of Republicans and Democrats where they decided to meet something that was health-related with, with mass economic devastation. I think it's correct to say, John, that never in human history – has the response to a disease been to quarantine the healthy? You know, we know about quarantining sick people, uh, sick people, the smallpox in the 18th century, something like that. Yes, if you came down with smallpox, you'd be quarantined. But is there any precedent for this idea of shutting down an entire society, quarantining everybody? My understanding is no, and, and what I always understood just in the anecdotal fashion is that when someone got sick, usually what parents did is they'd get the other kids together with them so they could get immunity right away. But yeah, of, co- of course never in history, and, and, and the reason for that is basic. There was never enough economic growth to sustain something so, so shockingly stupid. You know, I've heard for years about a decadent society and these different things. No, this was the most decadent act in the history of the United States. Oh, there's a virus coming, and so we're just going to shut things down for a few weeks. You know, um, who cares what happens? Now, think about can we have done this in, in, in 2020, in year 2000? Obviously not. This was a consequence of politicians so divorced from reality. All they know is that, oh, we can work from home from anywhere. I guess everyone's like us. And so life can continue. Just stay at home. Well, for most people, they can't do that. And so it's an incredibly decadent act that set back health care immeasurably. We'll never know how much it set it back and clearly will claim more lives than it saved, assuming it saved any. I think that's right. Now, I live in Minnesota, and uh, the story in Minnesota has been the story of nursing homes. Uh, and it's just almost it's unbelievable to me because the average or the median age of people who have died with COVID-19, whether it was the cause or not, who knows. Uh, but the median age, I think, is 83 and over 80 percent of all of the alleged COVID-19 fatalities in Minnesota have been either in nursing homes or um, assisted living facilities. It's over 80 yeah, percent. And, and, and yet our, it's unbelievable. So so the whole state is shut down. Children. Who, who just don't get this disease, or if they get it, don't suffer from it. And nevertheless, they, they cancel all the schools. They've shut down all the businesses. And, and, and the problem is a very limited problem that exists in nursing homes. And amazingly mm-hmm. enough, as I understand it, right up to today, they are still sending people infected with COVID-19 into nursing homes. The one thing that they ought to shut down, they haven't. Yep. Well, and, and, and everything I read concludes the same as you do. My, my one quibble with it, and it may, may surprise you, is what I, what I continue to argue is while I've always felt that, oh my gosh, it seems like we're overstating this and everything you read about says that, I think our side sets a dangerous precedent in making this about mortality rates. Because once we do that, we set the stage for future lockdowns. 
And we do because there will always be scientists and doctors who can convince gullible politicians who are afraid of their own shadow to shut things down, to take major precautions. They'll say the next time, hey, it looks like this virus is going to hit 34 and under. So that's America's future. We can't lose them, so we need to shut down again. The answer has got to be default of freedom because free people operating freely are always the answer to whatever questions exist. You know, the reality is if, if in fact, COVID-19 was a major, major threat to our well-being, we wanted people out and about living. You want people, you want those people who say, hey, there's no way it can hit me out there living as though it can't hit them. Because we need to know from them if, in fact, it's, it's transmittable just by going, living out and about. Some people, like my wife, will be washing their hands fastidiously and, and will quarantine at, at, at the word of virus. You need both so you can find out how it spreads. And so when we most needed information about how to protect ourselves from this, we blinded ourselves. And so it's dangerous to use mortality rates because, again, they'll, they'll just use that as an excuse. Well, this time is different. This time we really do need to shut things down, and we'll have to go through this nightmare again. John Tammy, we've got one more uh, short segment this hour, if you can stick with us for just a few minutes longer. Glad to. back now with uh, John Tamney. We've been talking about the COVID-19 epidemic and the damages that it's caused, and in particular, the damages that not that the disease has caused, but that the nationwide shutdown uh, has caused. John, it, it looks like we're finally kind of getting to the on the backside of this, this epidemic and the response to it. Uh, some states have substantially reopened. Others like mine, Minnesota, still almost totally locked down. Uh, my perception, John, is that the states that have been reopening, like like Texas and Georgia and uh, Florida, we're not seeing a big spike in infections. You know, there's supposed to be a, you know, somebody called Georgia's reopening an experiment in human sacrifice. <laughs> but but that doesn't seem to be happening. Well, yeah. How did you know that, that, that it didn't happen? Uh, because suddenly Georgia was out, out of the news. Before they reopened, there is all, those all over the New York Times. But once once they reopened and it wasn't some big risk, uh, people stopped talking about it. And that's the thing: uh, people don't need a law. Um, when have you ever needed force to cause you to uh, uh, not do something that might cause you to get sick? I just generally don't want to get sick. I don't want to, and so no one needed to be forced to do this. And of course, some people were going to um, throw caution to the wind no matter what. And you need people like that to do that. They provide crucial information too about how lethal the virus is. And so none of this ever made sense. So as states uh, continue to reopen and sooner or later, even my state, Minnesota has got to reopen, right? Catch down forever. Uh, I guess then it will be time to survey the economic damage. And of course, you know, the people that say this is a question of money versus lives, that's nonsense. It's lives versus lives. The economy means hundreds of millions of people's lives. That's what we're talking about. Well, what do you think, John? Are we going to see uh, the, you know, what they call a V-shaped recovery where the country bounces back really fast? 
or are we going to see, see lingering effects of this for a long time to come? The first time I wrote, wrote on the recovery was April 13th. I said then that it's going to be a very quick recovery. I stand by that. Let's be clear. Politicians have committing, been committing enormous blunders as long as politicians have existed. Uh, usually their blunders involve getting us into idiotic wars that kill gener- sometimes uh, many, uh, many millions in some countries' cases of the young generation. The good news about this one is, can we be honest, no one died. We didn't lose our best and brightest this time. Uh, So the human capital that drives all progress still exists. And so my sense, it's going to be a very quick recovery. Let's add to, you know, idiot economists will tell you that, that consumption drives economic growth. No investment drives economic growth. People have held back spending a lot during this economic contraction forced on them by politicians. So you're going to combine human capital with, with, a, with a growing capital base that will be matched with people with, with, with this human capital. So my sense is a very quick, uh, strong recovery. Uh, we just need to be clear that this was not uh, driven by politicians because we don't want to give them any other ideas. Well, let's hope the lesson that people take away from this is let's not do it again next year. You know, disease is a constant in human history. There's always disease, but let's not uh, destroy millions of lives when we don't uh, need to. John Tammy, thank you very much for being on the program. Hey, John, thank you so much for having me. I was flattered to be asked. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for Dan tonight. We are joined now in studio by uh, Scott Johnson, my good friend and longtime writing partner, and a collaborator on the Powerline website. Scott, thanks for being with us. John, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on board. Scott, this is one of those periods of time where there's too much news. You know, we, we thought the Wuhan virus was big news, and then, then, of course, we had the George Floyd incident and race riots across the country. Uh, if we have a little time toward the end, I might, might want to get your thoughts on what's been going on here in Minnesota. Once again, the eye of the hurricane on that big news story. But but I want to start out talking about our state's experience with the Wuhan virus. This is something you've covered on Powerline. You, you've done a series of posts, uh, coronavirus in one state, and I think it's up to 54 posts or something like that, basically daily through the, through the epidemic. How, how, let, let's just jump in. How, how, would, how would you describe uh, what, what you've been observing here over the course of, of the disease in, in Minnesota? Well, it's really been interesting. I can't say that I was paying attention until Governor Walls, the Democratic governor of Minnesota, announced a statewide shutdown on March 25th. And I watched a video of him announcing the shutdown and uh, giving the rationale for the executive order shutting down businesses throughout the state on the assertion that they projected that that he'd been working, his staff at the Minnesota Department of Health had been working with experts at the University of Minnesota to create a customized, tailor-made, super-duper 
Minnesota model, the projected 74,000 deaths from the virus in Minnesota. And watching the video, I took it at face value. I didn't stop to think how many people are going to die from this whole thing in the country. I thought, wow, that's pretty impressive. He built up this whole thing about having a super-duper Minnesota model that I took at face value. And uh, so that's when I tuned it, it, in. It later came out that that model was largely created by students over a weekend. It, it, if you're looking back at the video now, it looks like a Saturday Night Live skit. It looks like somebody trying to make fun of this whole, the, 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 the disaster that's befallen us. So, so the, the, what we were originally told by our governor was that according to this super-duper model, if nothing was done, 74,000 people in this state would, would die from COVID-19, but with a massive draconian shutdown, only, only 50,000 people would die. Actually, the, the proviso that you just gave didn't come out till the week later uh, when it was reported in the Star Tribune that according to the model, that with this draconian shutdown that he had ordered, only 50,000 of us would die, and that somehow uh, 24,000 lives would be saved by freeing up hospital space as a result of the shutdown. And I never tried to work out the math. And uh, in, in retrospect, Governor Walls has never tried to defend those numbers. He has just moved on. I think he owes the state an apology. That's something that's in my craw. But that's when I tuned in. And from the moment I tuned in and started looking at the data, the thing that stu stuck out at me in Minnesota was the ratio of nursing home deaths to all deaths. They, they were a substantial fraction of all deaths from the very early on, from about the first week of April. I, I was noting that the uh, deaths in what Minnesota authorities call long-term care facilities amounted to two-thirds of all deaths in Minnesota. And over the next two months, that number rose to 82% where it is today. And it jumped up to 80% pretty quickly. Uh, so I, I, I started asking the authorities in Minnesota, why is the state shut down uh, because we have a nursing home crisis? And we've seen this around the country. There's been a lot of controversy in New York State about the number of people who have gotten the disease and died in nursing homes compared with with everybody else. But I, I think Minnesota's the ultimate. Well, it turned out that we're number one. And th that's the thing. I started writing about this very early on and just noting this is what jumped out at me. And I would every day, five days a week, either the governor or the Minnesota Department of Health conducts a one-hour press briefing from 2 to 3 in the afternoon, and I started tuning into those press briefings. And I've been losing my mind because no one was asking the question, what's the deal? Why is the state shut down when, when these nursing homes are under your jurisdiction? There's a crisis in the nursing homes. Why aren't you protecting the patients in the nursing homes and letting the rest of us go about our business? It's one of the great public policy fiascos of all time. They shut down the entire state except for the nursing homes, which is where the problem was overwhelmingly concentrated. It's just almost unbelievable. So there, there's one, um, I would say, straight-ahead reporter in the state who three weeks ago asked the question that, represented the thinking that I thought had been uh, had not been apparent in these press briefings. His name's Tom Hauser at KSTP TV News, and he asked uh, the Minnesota Department of Health commissioner and her colleague who was there on the briefing that day, if you take all the long-term care facility deaths and add in the deaths of others 
other in Minnesota we haven't had a death under age 30 so we're talking about all elderly people with significant underlying medical conditions as categorized by the state what share of all COVID-19 deaths does that account for and they had the answer computed to two decimal points which just blew me away and the answer was 99.24 percent they had it right at their fingertips and they had never given this information until Tom Hauser asked three and a half weeks ago and so this is just stunning to me, Scott. So they, they know, they're sitting there, they run these numbers, 99.24% of the deaths in Minnesota were either people in uh, nursing homes or, or um, long-term care facilities or people with one of seven identified serious underlying conditions, 99.24%. And instead of, of identifying the vulnerable people and doing something to protect the vulnerable people, they shut the whole state down. That's what's driven me nuts. And as you mentioned at the top, I've been writing about this every day. It's gotten so repetitive. Uh, But it seems to me that people who are at risk generally don't know it. Uh, And yet the state runs these press briefings every day. They're televised all throughout the state. They're live streamed on the Internet. it's very rare that these conditions are mentioned. If I if I ruled the state, I would be urging, I would be naming these conditions and urging the people who are not in long-term care facilities but nevertheless have one of these serious underlying medical conditions like diabetes to stay home and protect themselves. And incidentally, just one other, one other data point that I, I have been writing about since the day I first tuned in on this is that the median age of death of uh, COVID-19 patients who've died in Minnesota is 83. It's unbelievable. So half of the patients who've died are over 83, half the patients under 83. Just, there seems to be a clue in that number somewhere. I, I just ran the number. Yeah, these numbers are posted daily. The, the current, they, they would have just posted new numbers at, at 11 o'clock today, so I haven't had a chance to check today's number. But as of Sunday, there were 14 new deaths. Two of the 14 were over 100. And <laughs> And uh, 11 of the 14 were long-term care facility residents, and it's just another day in Minnesota. Day after day, they announce essentially the same numbers, but they don't do anything about them. So I want to segue a little bit now, Scott, and talk about your role in this, because early on, you you actually are a former journalist, and of course at Powerline, and you and I have written uh, op-eds together for how many years now? 25, 30 years? I think it's 1993. And um, and so you're well-known as a journalist and a commentator on the news. And so, and so for a while, you were attending uh, these press briefings virtually in that capacity and had the opportunity, at least on occasion, to ask a question. Just tell us just a little bit about that. Well, the, these uh, press briefings, as I mentioned, are conducted five days a week. And when the governor participates, they're run by his staff. Uh, that's once or twice a week. Put those to one side. The other briefings uh, are run by the Minnesota Department of uh Health And those briefings include either the Commissioner of Health, Commissioner Jan Malcolm, she's been on almost every one, and her sidekick, Chris Ayersman, head of the Infectious Diseases Division. Well, I started writing the press context. There are four press officers at the Minnesota Department of, of Health. I started writing two of them, asking them to include me on the conference call. The, the briefing is broadcast around the state on television, but it's conducted by conference call. And the journalists who participate are sent a number each, a conference call telephone number and code to dial into each day. So for a few weeks, they included me in that telephone briefing, and I would 
get in line to ask a question. I was never called on, but they said if we didn't get to your question today, email it to us. So I would email my question of the day, which was usually, why is the state shut down <laughs> to deal with a nursing home crisis? And this was in you know mid-April that I started asking the question. And when it wasn't being asked, and, and, and the, the predominance of nursing home deaths wasn't even really being noted. It's become a national disgrace since then, but it really wasn't at this time. So uh, they, on April 27th, they stopped sending me the call-in data, and I started asking these two press officers, what's the deal? Why aren't you including me? They never responded. So we're going to go to a break now, and when we come back, we are going to talk about Scott's lawsuit against the state of Minnesota. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We're back on the Dan Proft Show and we're talking with Scott Johnson. Uh, and Scott has been telling us about uh, the coronavirus uh, epidemic in our state of Minnesota and how it's really kind of an extreme case of something we've seen around the country. If you're not 85 years old, you're probably okay. And if you don't have a serious underlying health condition, you know, you're, you're okay. The entire state has been shut down with devastating consequences, while at the same time not addressing the crisis where it actually exists, which is in the nursing homes. And, Scott, you got frustrated with this because they never talked about it. The hard questions were never getting asked. You got access to these press briefings and started asking the hard questions, and, and what happened after that? Well, I got a couple of, I would say, mealy-mouthed responses that kind of conceded the premise of what I was asking, and the, the gist of the answers was really, you're too stupid to take care of, care of yourself. We can't trust you to take care of yourself. People who are grossly obese, which is one of the seven conditions, don't want to concede it, don't want to recognize it. We can't afford to let them look out for themselves. So th- that was the gist. So they have it. to quarantine everybody else because okay. obese people. So I would quote what they they would respond to my they a couple times to my questions in writing, and I posted the responses on Powerline. I thought they were illuminating. I thought I was making a contribution to the state of public knowledge about what was going on in Minnesota and understanding the thinking of the officials, which was not otherwise apparent. Well, on April twenty seventh, they I, I fell outside the circle of love, and they wouldn't tell me why, and it was driving me nuts. So they stopped sending you these emailed invitations to virtually attend the. I emailed, I followed up with, I think, seven emails to these two guys asking, why aren't you including me? The courtesy of a reply is requested. They just ignored me. Well, a journalist in Washington got interested in my story from writing about it on Powerline and covered it for the Washington Free Beacon. And he wrote these people at the Minnesota Department of Health and said, why are, are you excluding Scott Johnson from these press briefings? And he got a response and he forwarded it to, to, while he was working on the story. At, at deadline, he got the response. But he forwarded the response from the Minnesota Department of Health to me, and it was to the effect that we only include professional journalists on these calls. And that really made me mad. I have to say, up to then, it was kind of fun and games, although I, I hate being ignored, uh, which is what they were doing to me and, and treating me like I'm nobody. But uh, when I saw that they were giving obviously a fake rationale for my exclusion. Because, really in fact, you had been included. 
I had been included, and I've been writing for newspapers and magazines and for Powerline, which are all profit-making entities, and gotten paid for it over the past 30 years, written for the New York Post, the New York Times, National Review, the Weekly Standard, and many, many other magazines, uh, mostly on a joint byline with you, John, but um, over the years, and I just thought that was ludicrous. So I, uh, it occurred to me that you know, they've got a limited public forum for journalists to ask questions to public officials. I don't think they can exclude me because they don't like the questions I'm asking. And and if that's what they're doing, I mean, and if they have a good reason, they never gave it to me. They gave a bad reason to the to the Washington Free Beacon. I thought it's Ill, what they're doing to me is illegal. Yeah, so, it's viewpoint discrimination. I take that's it. what that's what I think. And they have yet to articulate an honest or fair rationale that can withstand scrutiny. So. I found a lawyer, a really good lawyer, to represent me. We sued the Minnesota Department of Health and the Commissioner of Health, Jan Malcolm, uh, this past Thursday at the close of business on Thursday. And we're going to be seeking a preliminary injunction, uh, ordering them to include me on these press briefings. And it's going to have to be a little bit more than that, I mean, to make it meaningful. But uh, uh, I'll I'll look forward to hearing what they have to say in this lawsuit. They're going to have to answer that, even if they don't have to answer me. So the lawsuit, it's brought by one of the big law firms here in the Twin Cities, and it's venued in the federal court? It's, it's venued in the federal district court for the District of Minnesota. And it's premised on the First Amendment, obviously. It's a First Amendment claim under Section 1983, the general federal civil rights statute that is widely used to secure people their rights. And you're looking for injunctive relief to force them, to require them to admit you back into the circle of love, as you as you called it. <laughs> they obviously don't love you, Scott, the way they love some of these NPR folks and, uh, and other. John, and other... I also asserted a claim for damages. It occurred to me they're disparaging me in my profession. Right. Which is journalism. I'm not a professional journalist. I think that's a libel per se. I mean, let, let's get that on the table, too. So, let's... so you're asking for damages as well as an injunction. You know, the, the, the complaint seeks damages, and I ask them to include that in there. It's, yeah. it's there at my request. So in the normal course of uh, prosecuting a lawsuit, uh, the lawsuit would survive a lot longer than the coronavirus. We all know how that goes. Uh, so are you going to have your lawyer move in there uh, at a very, very early date looking for a preliminary injunction? I, I think that she's um, calling the judge today and trying to get a date or uh, – uh, asking how they want uh, motions for preliminary injunction to be handled. But she's looking for a hearing date and working on the papers today. This is kind of inside baseball, but which judge is the case been assigned it, to? It's assigned to Judge Donovan Frank in St. Paul. Uh-huh. And I, incidentally, I'm a, a, an accredited member of the press covering the federal courts in Minnesota, and they have an annual lunch for the reporters, including me, who cover the federal courts in Minnesota. Judge Frank was at the last annual meeting. <laughs> I, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Scott. This is hilarious. We have to pause and just talk about this for a minute. So they're going to be arguing in federal court that they can exclude you from these briefings because you're not a real journalist. But the federal court itself, the U.S. District Court for the District of Minnesota, has in fact accredited you as a journalist, and you've gotten a press pass to go into this, these very courtrooms and cover stories like the criminal prosecutions of, uh, of, of terrorists, for example, in, in the Twin Cities. Exactly. And uh, you know, I have to resist the temptation to wear it around my neck when we move for the preliminary injunction. <laughs> but, but I do. It's one of those press passes you wear around your neck. It says media, Scott Johnson, power line. And I'm kind of proud of it. But yeah. it's coming in handy in this lawsuit. It's going to make it very difficult for them to make the argument that you're not a real journalist, <laughs> having already been accredited as such 
by the court. Well, Scott, good luck with your uh, lawsuit. And uh, one way or another, I hope that the people who are misgoverning this state have to answer some hard questions. It's unbelievable to me that day after day after day, they stand up and they recite the same facts. You know, 15 people died, 12 of them were in nursing homes, median age, 81, 82 you know, and, and on account of that, every business is shut down. Churches are shut down. Bars and restaurants still totally shut down. It's really a shocking state of affairs. Incidentally, they now withhold the median age of death number. Oh, they stop publicizing they, that? They give demographic data of uh, the age group of decedents. But I found it, you know, highly useful to be able to note. And I, I think the number is still 83 and a half. Yeah, right, which is revealing revealing in its own right. Scott, the uh, we're just about out of time here, but the COVID-19 story, which is dominated for, for so long, is being superseded here in Minnesota by the race riot uh, story. Uh, very sad times. It's, uh, it's just so tragic, and there are so many tragic stories that have yet to be told about the destruction in Minneapolis. I, um, it's hard to get a handle on, but it's, this is really Alice in Wonderland stuff. The Attorney General, Keith Ellison, has just taken over the case against the Minneapolis police officer, and Ellison himself, back in the 90s, was a ringleader uh, going around town, leading demonstrations, chanting, no justice, no peace, defending... After the murder of a policeman. ...the gangbangers who shot Officer Jerry Hoff in the back on what was up till then, I think, the lowest day in the, in the history of the city of Minneapolis. And Attorney General Keith Ellison is on record as an advocate for Antifa, the people who are, in large part at least, uh, carrying out these uh, the violent... Uh, the looting and the arson and so so and our same government officials who did such a great job with COVID-19 now in charge of the, uh, the public safety and the riots. Scott Johnson, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, John. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. We are joined now by Julie Kelly, senior contributor at American Greatness. Julie, thanks for being on the program. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Julie, you've got a new book coming out, I think, later this month. Is that right? Well, it got pushed to the first week of July just because of the uh, COVID emergency. I guess they had an outbreak as a publisher. So we're a few weeks delayed, but yes, July 7th. Yeah, you know, now that you mentioned that, I know a number of, of books, uh, publication dates have been pushed back for various reasons associated with the, uh, with the epidemic. But coming out next month, and the title of the book is Disloyal Opposition. Tell us about it. So um, this is my first book, and it is a book that details the involvement, really the failed involvement, of what we would refer to as never-Trump Republicans. So these are people on the right, conservatives and longtime Republicans, a small group, but a very vocal group, who uh, opposed has opposed Trump really since he announced his candidacy in 2015. And so I just go through their history and, uh, you know, how they've tried to sabotage and really destroy the Trump presidency and how they failed. <laughs> uh, they're going to keep trying in 2020. You know, a lot of them support Joe Biden. Um, but they also got involved and gave, gave really aid and comfort to the left throughout Trump's presidency and needed to be documented. 
So the Never Trumpers, um, let's name some names here. Who, who okay. would you say are, are, are the most prominent or most effective, most important members of that group? Well, I think the leader of the group really is Bill Crystal, um, who I was a fan of for years and why his involvement has been so disappointing to me. So he is the former publisher of the Weekly Standard, which went was shuttered uh, at the end of 2018. So he's kind of been the de facto leader. But there are quite a few other influencers and pundits who followed Crystal's lead. So this, in my book, I go through people like Jonah Goldberg and David French, who have left National Review and started their own publication. Um, Max Boot and Jennifer Rubin at the Washington Post. Um, Tom Nichols, who's an author and most spends most of his time tweeting. Rick Wilson, uh, who's a CNN contributor, and really people like John McCain when he was uh, still alive, and now Mitt Romney. So, you know, you have this group that really doesn't represent the Republican Party, who, uh, you know, he's about 90 percent plus approval rating in the Republican Party. But they definitely have an outsized representation uh, in the news media on major newspapers and, and cable news shows trying to portray this uh, this sense that Republican rank and file are very dissatisfied with Donald Trump. Um, and so to that. So those are some of the names that people might be more familiar with. Yeah, it's really interesting, Julie. You know, I was not a Trump fan when that process started back in 2015, 2016. Mm -hmm. There were 17 or 19, whatever it was, you know, Republican candidates for the nomination. If there were 17 in that field, uh, Donald Trump was my number 17 choice, probably. <laughs> I didn't take him. I think I was with you, you know, I, I didn't. I, yeah, mm -hmm. I didn't. I didn't take him seriously. And then and then as he became a serious contender, I, my biggest concern was that he didn't really have a track record as a conservative. I was afraid he was going to, if he one, he'd, you know, he'd turn out, he'd disappoint us, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, I think he's been a terrific president, you know, say what you will about his personality, his policies have been highly successful and, and very conservative. What do you think it is, Julie? Uh, so that's, so I'm a, I'm a Trump fan now, and I'm sure he's mm -hmm. not going to vote for Joe Biden. You know, <laughs> what, what, what is it that would drive people who, who in, in some cases have got a legitimate history as conservatives to go out there and say, I'm, I'm voting for Joe Biden? That's a great question. I think there are differing answers. So first of all, I think it's an ego thing, right? So they were against Donald Trump from the beginning. I was too. I voted for him in the general election. But after he was elected, I got on board. And like you said, his accomplishments and how he handled things under immense, unprecedented pressure um, really impressed me and, and still does. So I think part of it is ego, John. They they said all along that he is incapable of being president, so they're going to stick with their story. It's also their shtick. If they came around to supporting Trump, Jennifer Rubin would lose her gig at the Washington Post, right? Nobody wants to listen to uh, Max Boot or Rick Wilson on CNN talk about how they come around on Donald Trump. So this is their livelihood. And as I detail my book, which is even more disconcerting, a lot of these folks are taking money millions of dollars directly from um, the co-founder or the founder of eBay, who's a well-known left-wing billionaire who is financing a lot of Never Trump projects. And so that's where that's where they're getting their money from. Now, this is news to me. I have not heard anything about that, um, I, that, that there's funding available for these Never Trumpers. That's a kind of appalling thought. We're talking here with Julie Kelly, and we're going to go to a break, and we're going to come back uh, with more 
from Julie after these messages. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. We're talking with Julie Kelly about her new book about the Never Trumpers. It's titled Disloyal Opposition, coming out next month. Julie, right before the break, you said something that I had no idea of, and that is that there's a, a, a billionaire, some rich person, founder of eBay, who is providing financial support to these Never Trumpers. Who is that, and what's the nature of the support? Right, and this I've covered for the last few years. So his name is Pierre Omidyar. He's the founder of eBay. Uh, he's a Silicon Valley tech giant. He's friends with a lot of the other tech billionaires who are supporting Democrats. And he is bankrolling people like Bill Crystal and his organization. He is a funder for The Bulwark, which is kind of an offshoot of the Weekly Standard after that. They got shuttered in the end of 2018. He's a funder of people like Evan McNeil. Mullen and Mindy Finn, their stand-up republic. He also funds organizations like the Niskanen Center, which is an environmental group that's also anti-Trump. So I go through all the organizations and never Trumpers who Pierre Omidyar has funded. And we're not talking a little bit. We're talking about millions of dollars to keep this never Trump movement afloat and to do, you know, use their voices, as I said, to try to portray this discontent, this imagined discontent among Republicans and conservatives with the president that just does not exist. So that's really interesting to me. Is this is this guy, this eBay founder, is he a conservative or is he just another left winger who is doing this for tactical reasons? No, he's definitely a left winger. Um, I source who his contributions have been to for the past. I mean, he's given tens of millions of dollars to left wing organizations on climate, on immigration. He's an open borders advocate. He's donated to Planned Parenthood. I mean, all the left wing organizations, really, who a lot of these never Trumpers have fought against for decades. And now they're taking money from, at least from him, I'm sure he's tied, they're tied into some other left-wingers too, to really upend what they allegedly fought for for decades. And in the process, John, they've reversed themselves on every uh, issue, which I also document in my book, from climate change to illegal immigration to gun control, tax cuts, you name it. Their stated positions, just as early as the late mid 2000s have been completely reversed. They've done a 180 on all of those issues. So it's larger than just being against Donald Trump, right? It's against issues conservatives care about. They've gone after Republican lawmakers like Devin Nunes. They have, you know, they jumped on the anti-Kavanaugh bandwagon. Some of them attacked the Covington Catholic High School kids. You know, here are teenagers who supposedly represent the best of the conservative movement, the kind of youth that the conservative movement pretended to want to raise in this political atmosphere, and they jumped on attacking teenagers, too. So I go through, like I said, it's more than just the president. It's really whole-scale opposition to everything in the Republican Party and conservative movement that they have leveraged, right? 
That's how they got their livelihood. That's why I call it disloyal opposition. So that's really interesting, Julie. So so what do you think is the cause and what's the effect? I guess I hadn't, some of these people I know personally, um, and some mm-hmm. of them I've seen a little bit of as pundits, but I haven't followed it. You know, Rick Wilson say, I just don't follow that closely, <laughs> Jennifer Rubin. Oh Good idea. <laughs> you know, but so so what do you think is going on here? I mean, is it is it that their dislike of Trump and their determination to oppose him on every front has caused them to take anti-conservative positions? Or do you think that they actually have ideologically drifted to the left to the point where these are just sincere, you know, that they'd be saying the same thing about any Republican president? No, I definitely think that Trump has been the catalyst either for their phony, dishonest portrayals in the media of what they think Republicans and conservatives are. I think maybe in some cases they really never were conservative. If you look at someone like Bill Kristol or Tom Nichols or even Max Boot, their allegiance to conservatism really dealt with foreign engagement, right? They kind of, so that was the basis of neoconservatism. They weren't really conservatives in a social sense. It was more about using military power to achieve their end, say in the Middle East and spreading democracy, that kind of what we used to hear, you know, uh, several years ago. So maybe at their core, they really weren't that kind of conservative. Um, But Donald Trump, and you know this too, has been a clarifying factor on a a lot of issues. (laughs) So I think the division between Republicans and people who we listen to, pundits, leaders, presidential candidates like Mitt Romney and John McCain, what they've done to try to undermine the Trump presidency, what they did, um, shouldn't be forgotten. And we need to have a historical account of it. Well, that's for sure. And and I don't think it's too hard to figure out the motives of of those two men you just mentioned, John McCain and Mitt Romney. I, I it, you know, I just human nature tells me that they bitterly resent the fact they lost and Trump won. I think they could they cannot forgive him. Now, as to McCain, there was some other byplay going on during the campaign. You know, that's understandable. Right. But I think over, overarching, you know, beyond all of that, you know, he's the guy that won after they lost, and I don't think they could forgive him for it. Well, they can't. And it's one thing for, say, John McCain to be bitter about it. Obviously, Trump made remarks about him that were unkind and probably shouldn't have been said. But John McCain was a central figure in promoting the Russian collusion hoax. He did whatever he could with his power at the time to help continue this idea that Donald Trump won the election with the help of the Russians and his campaign colluded with the Kremlin to influence the outcome as well. Um, And so his role in that should not, must be remembered because it was such a subversive act for someone who is a two-time Republican presidential candidate to actively work with the left and the media and the Democrats to try to destroy Donald Trump, a Republican, obviously Republican president. Um, So, my book names names. This they need to be remembered for what they did, and they must never be in a position of power influence in the Republican Party ever again. We've got just uh, thirty six seconds before the next break, uh, Julie. So real quickly, it seems to me that the nice thing about the Never Trumpers is that they're a complete failure. I mean, Trump's approval rating among Republicans is like ninety six percent or something. These people are like leaders with no followers, aren't they? They are. They failed at everything, and now they are active Democrats. They campaigned for Democrats in 2018. They're wholly behind Joe Biden, um, which I would be afraid if I was Joe Biden because it's the never-Trump kiss of death. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be 
interesting to see how they play along. But you're right. They've lost it every attempt to take down Donald Trump. And my guess is that they are going to lose once again in November 2020. Julie, we've just got one more short segment this hour. Can you stick with us through the commercial break? I'd love to. We'll be right back after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We are talking with Julie Kelly, senior editor of uh, American Greatness. Julie, I want to change gears uh, completely in this last short segment and talk about the race riots that are now bedeviling America. Obviously, I'm in Minnesota, which is where the whole thing started, but uh, you've been tweeting about them. What's your take? I mean, it's probably how a lot of how you feel and your listeners. I mean, it's infuriating to watch. It's heartbreaking in many ways. Our political leadership across the board, I mean, from every from going right from the covid crisis to this we really are led by people who have no idea what they're doing they just don't know what they're doing uh when they do it's the wrong thing they're not tough you know they're tough on beachgoers but not on arsonists and and burglars and attempted murderers so i mean it's it's just another disaster but it again is just exposing who the left is who the democrats are what kind of future they want and it's this kind of lawlessness anarchy they're on the side of antifa they don't really reject them they really share a common ideology you know it's an amazing thing i could talk a lot about what's happened in minnesota i i won't but but yesterday our governor announced that he was appointing attorney general keith ellison <laughs> to supervise the prosecution of this one minneapolis uh, police officer the guy who knelt on uh, on george floyd's uh, neck and this is unbelievable for a couple of reasons. Number one, the Hennepin County Attorney's Office has assigned an excellent prosecutor to this case. She's the person who got the conviction of Muhammad Noor a couple of years ago after he shot Justine Damon. The last fiasco we had with the Minneapolis Police Department. Well, I'm not sure if Ellison's going to, you know, they got to leave her on the case. She's good. Ellison knows nothing about any of this. And not only that, he's actually a supporter and an advocate for Mm -hmm. Antifa. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Well, Moss isn't doing it by accident, right? He's sending a message. Um, and so he's sending a message that he's going to put a vile human being like Keith Ellison in charge of this, that this these cops are going to pay. I mean, they should pay, obviously. But this is a message he's sending out, which, John, is why this is kind of a debate on social media today, whether or not Trump should authorize the military to go into some of these cities and quell this violence. I object to it. I know people I respect support it. Um, But this is a political and cultural climate that the Democrats have created, that their voters have supported. And so... I don't see any, it getting any better anytime soon. Um, but, I mean, what you say about Keith Ellison being in charge of that, I mean, he's just going to leverage this, and he's going to continue to gaslight people in your state and in your city over this. Well, that's right. And, of course, when you look at the leadership that we have that's relevant to this, this situation in the Twin Cities, it's all Democrats. There's not a Republican in the picture. This is entirely their mess. It's of their making. It's their police department, and yet they attack it constantly. They run against it. And the mayor and city council of Minneapolis are the only people in the world that have the ability to reform the Minneapolis Police Department, and they won't do it. 
They just want to run against it. Totally irresponsible. Julie Kelly, thanks for being with us. And to all of our listeners, thanks for joining us on The Dan Proft Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.